You're listening to episode 60 of Positively. I'm your host, Rocío Carvajal, food history writer, cook, and author. And on this podcast, I explore the gastronomic traditions of Mexico and bring together the voices of cooks, authors, and entrepreneurs who build cross-cultural bridges around the world, championing Mexican food. To find more information about the podcast, my projects, and subscribe to my newsletter, check this episode's notes or go to my website, pasachipotle.com. Foods are incredible substances that have the quality of nourishing our bodies, make us feel good, and even heal us. But we can use our imagination and creativity to transform them into sensory-pleasing creations. We attribute meaning to them, create social rituals to celebrate them, or to celebrate ourselves, too. And we write stories about them and turn them into heroes. And in their pursuit, civilizations have traveled far and wide, sourcing precious ingredients and welcoming them into their tables and cultures. Whoever would have thought that thousands of miles away from the exuberant tropical rainforests, cocoa beans will find themselves arriving at the shores of a cold and rainy island in the North Sea. By the time cocoa beans reached England in the 1600s, they were no strangers to playing a big part in history. After all, they had been the main ingredient of sacred drinks and even had a life of their own as currency, dowries, and imperial tributes. But the biggest transformation yet to happen was going from being an enjoyment for the rich and powerful to become an affordable mouthful of heaven for everyone. My guest today is an acclaimed chocolate and confectionery historian who is a familiar face and voice that is continuously invited to share her expertise in documentaries, radio programs and newspapers, where she shares the often surprising and always fascinating aspects of the history of confectionery and the chocolate industry in Britain. Archivist and chocolate historian Alex Hutchinson previously held the enviable position of company historian for Nestle in York, England. But aware that such archival treasures at the heart of the company will find a higher purpose by making them accessible to more people, Alex successfully convinced Nestle and the University of York to rehouse these magnificent documents. And with that, she also turned the page of her career and in 2018, under the pen name of Pennythorpe, Alex published two historical novels celebrating the social history behind quality street chocolates and the lives of the women who worked at the chocolate factory in Halifax. While you might think that cocoa is an innocent subject, you will find out that such a grand culinary staple will take us to explore little-known aspects about the social history of England, discover the location of the cradle of confectionery, and even learn about the darker side of cocoa trade. This fantastic last interview that closes season four of Passage Butler podcast even comes with a guided chocolate meditation, where you will learn to discern and fully appreciate and enjoy chocolate's sensory explosion. Well, I don't think I have any more to add to all this introduction, except that I hope you enjoy this episode. Alex, finally, welcome to Pass the Chipotle podcast. Well, thank you for having me. This is very exciting. I'm excited to talk more about chocolate, but particularly to learn more from you about Mexican chocolate. Ooh, well, this is going to be a two-way, very enriching conversation. And a few weeks ago, you joined Greg Jenner on the BBC You Are There To Me podcast, brilliant show, to talk about the history of chocolate, amazing episode, and very timely, as I had also released an episode of Coco of my current series of uh, cultural staples. And I thought I absolutely have to talk to this woman because she is, you are a treasure. So here we are. And uh, today we are pretty much continuing exploring deeper 
into those areas and aspects mentioned on uh, both podcasts. Well, one of the most fascinating things about cocoa is how it really is one of those rare ingredients that has always been given special status in pretty much every culture that has ever come in contact with it. And I don't know, I guess it's a similar case to that of saffron or truffles or other very special foods. Well, the history goes way back because thousands of years ago, cocoa was seen as a life-giving substance here in this side of the world in Mesoamerica. And it was acknowledged as a gift from the gods. The way our ancestors lived it was quite literal. And when he went away to Europe, it kind of had a bumpy start. That happened in the mid-1500s. And Goku really had a, a main breakthrough in the 1600s. And in the case of England particularly, coincided with the restoration of the monarchy. And drinking chocolate became rapidly embraced by the totally flamboyant court of Charles II. But also, there was a sudden rise in the so-called chocolate houses, which uh, was a kind of a parallel phenomenon to that of uh, coffee houses. So what can you tell us about the early years of the rise of chocolate? And like, how was it prepared? What did it taste like? We don't have time machines, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you are the expert. Uh, like, how did they figure out how to deal with cocoa beans? Where did they get them from? And how how they accommodated this exotic drink into their social life? Well, we do know a little bit about what chocolate would have tasted like uh, in, when it first came to, to England. Um, although the first time it arrived in Britain... Um, the British thought that the um, shipment they'd come across was um, sheep dung and burned a lot of it. So it, it did have it did have a bumpy ride on its way to, to England. But once it arrived in England, um, we know that it would have been um, quite bitter and quite astringent, much, much more so than modern chocolate, so the 21st century chocolate, because there have been some things in the last... 150 years which have changed the taste of chocolate so that first chocolate that the English had would have been quite fatty because they hadn't learned how to um, defat cocoa um, there would have been a strong acidic kind of um, vinegary tang to it um, which comes out of the fermenting and, and, and the roasting process and it would have been made on a small scale So at first, there were no big chocolate or cocoa factories. So in order to make chocolate, you'd have to go down to the docks and uh, and buy a sack. It might have arrived um, at the port of Hull um, and you buy a sack of cocoa. Presumably, you're um, uh, uh, somebody running a cocoa house. You've got your sack of cocoa and you need to roast it. You're going to roast it on an open fire in um, maybe a a copper pan you might have one guy roasting out one small pan of it and then it goes into a a second pan once the beans have been roasted to be um, crushed up and um, uh, separate the shell from the bean and then it will go on to um, uh, a matate which is Mm -hmm. is a mexican invention if the cocoa maker had an experience of the tradition of cocoa making we have heard that some cocoa makers didn't realize they could use a matate and so they were using pestle and mortar they would try to grind this these cocoa beans up into a paste and then boil them in water or milk or maybe red wine to try to make a kind of a um a fatty, lumpy gruel, as Deborah Cabri described it. It doesn't sound all that appetising in the early days. <laughs> it, the, because they had inherited chocolate in England, kind of third hand. It had um, it had arrived in Europe through the Spanish um, and the Spanish court, and they had benefited from a little bit of the experience, the long, long, long experience of the native Mexican people who, for thousands of years, had been making drinks out of cocoa. And then, by the time it arrived in England, we're kind of getting it third hand so it took us a while to get the hang of how to make this a little bit more palatable we'd add lots of things to it but the big problem was that it was a fatty lumpy gruel at first it sounds like it was a bit of hard work to make that fashionable which says a lot about the way we embrace fashion that might not always be comfortable or even nice but for the sake of it uh, we embrace it so how did they acquire that taste 
Well, of course, cocoa contains an alkaloid called theobromine and, and caffeine is also an alkaloid. So alkaloids are stimulants. So cocoa was always going to be stimulating and possibly that's what they got hooked on. But I think really that those early consumers of cocoa in England were just hipsters. <laughs> I think that there's something inherently kind of exciting about doing something that nobody else is doing. It was fashionable, but not necessarily yummy. But one of the other appealing aspects of cocoa was that it was considered to be very healthful. And the difference between the British attitude to cocoa and say that of France and Spain was the British marketed it as a breakfast drink and something that was going to benefit your health. So they weren't necessarily drinking it because they liked it. They were perhaps drinking it more because they thought it would benefit them. I'm sure some people liked it and I'm sure that there were some cocoa makers who made a lovely, lovely drink of cocoa, but it still wouldn't have tasted the way our cocoa tastes today. It would have been very different. Well, a kick they certainly had. And, and obviously, like you say, it would have been very different from the hot, steamy, velvety drinks that you know, children now or adults as well are, are used to. But you touched on something very interesting, which is something about the flavor, like what happens when, when we eat chocolate. Because roasted cocoa beans indeed have one of the world's most complex natural flavors. And I know now, thanks to you, that not only is the flavor but the taste uh, which are different things so whether we bite through a roasted beans we taste it uh, ground on its own or, or combined with sugar and spices in solid or liquid form there's always this chain reaction that you were uh, mentioning you know, that sets off fireworks in our brains and taste buds you recently created a very sweet little video on your youtube channel which i will put on the notes of this episode and you precisely talk about this. So can you break down for us uh, what is this Chucky Sensory Festival about and what is uh, within Coco's chemistry that stimulates our brains and our taste buds and like what's this uh, black magic with science uh, behind this memorable flavour of, of cocoa and chocolate? Oh, I mean cocoa is a whole podcast series on its own. It's wonderful stuff and when I first tasted chocolate as a child I was really just hooked by the sugar and it wasn't until I went to work for a chocolate factory as an adult that I started to learn more about how my senses work and how I could get much more enjoyment from chocolate because most of us are taught as children that you have five senses but actually you've got lots more than that. So for instance taste is detected by your palate, by your tongue. You can taste salt, sweet, umami, sour and bitter. And those are the only things that are picked up by your tongue. And things like floral notes, nutty or malty or buttery, those are all picked up by your olfactory sense. And that's at the back of your throat. And the way that you can try to separate out those two experiences, taste and flavour, is by performing an experiment at home. We'll call this a chocolate meditation. So hold your nose and make sure that you haven't smelt any chocolate before you start doing this. You hold your nose, get a piece of chocolate, preferably something with a high cocoa content. If you like dark chocolate, I would go for a dark chocolate. But if you don't like dark chocolate, you can go for milk chocolate, but a really, really good quality artisan milk chocolate. Place it on your tongue and you may need to breathe through your mouth for this. So it will look a little undignified, but it's worth it. And let it melt around your tongue. And once it's really coated your tongue, really concentrate on the sugariness, the sweetness. Try to let your brain take all of that in and register it. And once you've, you've really taken note of the sweetness, then let go of your nose and breathe in through your nose and then out through your nose and mouth again. And you should get a whoosh of extra flavour of floral notes and fruity notes and or, or whatever your particular chosen chocolate happens to have. Sometimes you don't get it the first time. Maybe you accidentally smelt the chocolate beforehand. But once you've got the hang of it, it completely changes your perception of chocolate. And then you're ready to learn about your trigeminal nerve. You've got a, a cluster of nerves that are responsible for detecting things like the warmth in chilies, the coolness of menthol, or or the kind of uh, astringency of tannic acid in like uh, black tea and dark chocolate and cocoa and things, or the, the pungency of horseradish and garlic. And these are all things that aren't tastes and they aren't flavours, they're something else. So you've got a whole palette to play with and chocolate is the best way to experience all of those and to start getting more enjoyment from your ability to taste and detect flavours. And back in the early days of chocolate in England, it would have been much, much more astringent and much more bitter because they didn't have things like processes like conching and alkalizing and defatting. But I think it still would have been quite fun. 
I mean, you are describing the, the flavor of the Mexican chocolate, which is very rich. Yes. The problem is that with European chocolate, we tend to really go overboard with sugar and your brain will sometimes focus more on the sugar and you lose everything else. Yes. And if you're not really thinking about it, if you're eating chocolate while you're watching the television or just sort of wolfing it down without concentrating, you can miss the joy of chocolate because your brain will say, okay, I've just had a whole lot of sugar. That was great. But it won't stop to say, you know what? That tasted like burnt almonds and the sea. <laughs> you're, you're missing out on so much joy. And what I think is interesting about Mexican chocolate, and I, I really, really wish I could be in Mexico right now and try this for myself. I've seen photographs and videos. It looks as though there's a skill and a tradition there that has allowed Mexican chocolate makers to make something really fabulous that makes the most of all of those flavors without the necessity of the defatting mm -hmm. and the alkaline. That the Europeans brought in. And the Europeans, they had the same raw ingredients that the Mexicans had without the skills, without the knowledge. They couldn't do the same thing. And so they resorted to adding things to their cocoa to absorb the fat, like adding Iceland moss um, and other powders to kind of mop it up and make it more drinkable. Whereas the Mexicans didn't need to do that because they had um, the skills and a knowledge that meant that with those original ingredients, they could make something wonderful. Which can be overwhelming in itself, but that's the magic of it. And okay, I won't pretend I know what that moss is. Oh, Iceland moss. It was a kind of lichen. Uh, for, for anybody living in, in the, the UK, you'll be familiar with the strange kind of plant life that grows on gravestones. Oh, right. It yeah. looks like a sort of a, it looks like a splodge of paste has dried onto it. That is lichen. And you eat that? Not myself. Not recently. Um, the, the Victorians believed that it was incredibly healthy. And so they would uh, harvest it and grind it into a powder. Instead of calling it lichen, they would call it Iceland moss. I think that was to try and rebrand it and make it sound better. But this, I suppose, chalky looking powder was added to cocoa to absorb some of the fat. They eventually dealt with by bringing in this Dutch defatting process. But yeah, I have tried to make it once with, I have tried to make cocoa once with Iceland moss. And I can't say that it was an enjoyable experience. Did you have to visit your local cemetery? <laughs> I didn't. I didn't harvest it from the cemetery. We were able to order it on eBay in a bag. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope to goodness that it was harvested from some farm somewhere, but I worry. <laughs> <laughs> Now you worry. So we will get back to the making of chocolate and its new life in Europe. But um, we, we tend to take for granted the familiar and comforting flavors that are really part of our gastronomic identity. Sometimes we can't even imagine special occasions and celebrations that don't have these presents of certain foods. Now, England has one of the most intense, violent, long-standing love affairs with chocolate that I've ever seen in my life. I find it quite endearing just how much emotion you pour into it and the nostalgia and the passion you have about your brands and the texture and the flavor and if it has changed, if it hasn't, the combinations, the sizes. I mean, it's very impressive, even more so because you are far from being a cocoa-producing nation. So please take us back in time to, you know, this very exciting moment when chocolate confectionery that you were sort of hinting now uh, as now a mass-produced product came to exist and why, oh why, the world has a big debt with these Victorian geniuses, moss foragers, <laughs> that invented mass-produced confectionery and chocolate bars. Well, You're quite right. The British did in, invent the mass-produced chocolate bar and it has become our national religion ever since. And <laughs> we can have quite serious and heated arguments on Twitter about the ingredients and in the recipe of a Cadbury's cream egg. We get really upset about it. But I should state that although the British invented the, the eating chocolate bar, they were standing on the shoulders of giants. And the Mexican people who developed the process of fermenting, roasting and grinding these seeds down to a beverage, I never give them an Enough credit because that was the real genius. But if we take that as read, then after cocoa arrived in Britain, there were a few big developments which took it off on a total tangent and made it into a, a completely different product. So first of all, cocoa became a breakfast drink. It was rebranded as this healthy breakfast drink. And because it, it was rebranded as something you would have every day rather than something fashionable, it meant that there was a greater demand for it. There was a market for somebody to come along and 
industrialize its production uh, and bring economies of scale. And that was Fry's of Bristol. And they decided that there should be no more um, roasting sort of a, a couple of handfuls of cocoa beans in a pot and then and then grinding it all by hand. They invented a large scale roaster and it is still sometimes used today around the world. They developed sort of the prototype and they also introduced steam driven plant at a time when steam power was just beginning to become popular in the, the start of the Industrial Revolution. And they, they brought in uh, mass production to grinding. They started to mass produce drinking cocoa in a way that no Nobody else had, had done before. After Fries had brought in this mass production of cocoa, the Dutch had a genius idea. They came up with a way of alkalizing cocoa and also extracting the fat. They brought in a hydraulic press known as a Dutch press so that instead of having this black liquid fatty mass, you could squeeze out the cocoa butter, the fat in, in, inside that liquid mass and separate it out so you've got cocoa powder and cocoa butter. And the cocoa butter could be used in cosmetics or, and this is what the fries did, they got some of this spare cocoa butter and added it back into the original cocoa mass to make an extra fatty substance that they could then harden in a mould to make a chocolate bar. And they made the first ever mass-produced chocolate bar. And then along came a Swiss guy called Rudolf Lindt. And he, by accident, um, we're told, realised that if you stir this liquid chocolate that you're about to turn into a chocolate bar, and if you accidentally leave the stirring machine running for, say, 24 or 48 hours, the natural acids and vinegars and, and volatiles that are in that liquid naturally occurring will evaporate and it will give it a, a much better taste and, and mouthfeel. You will lose some of that astringency which is naturally present in cocoa and it will not trigger your trigeminal nerve quite so easily. And then along comes the Swiss guy, Daniel Peter. He adds milk and creates milk chocolate. Nestle invent white chocolate. And then finally, Roundtree's, the Quaker company in New York, turn chocolate into something which is a grocery product and that you would buy every day instead of just making it a luxury for occasional purchase. So in just, you know, a hundred or so years, the Europeans have taken chocolate on this total tangent where instead of becoming um, a wonderful, healthful, foamy drink for majestic, regal, high-status people. It's now become something you put in your packed lunchbox and it's wrapped in foil. And it's a tangent, but it's quite an exciting one. Is it an improvement on the Mayer original? I'm not convinced. It was certainly genius. They have now democratised chocolate. And I think that's why we're obsessed with it. I mean, there's two things that I want to highlight. One, here in Mesoamerica, without the use of machinery, they have found ways to extract the fat. Just like these very industrious Victorians, they were using the butter, well, the oil, as a natural skin moisturizer. It was also the base to prepare pastes to apply makeup. No, wait, wait, hang on. You've just blown my mind. You've just blown my mind. Wait a minute. So the... So you guys already knew how to get the fat out. Why didn't you tell us? What? How were you getting it out? Oh, you didn't know. <laughs> was this was this with the heated matate? Yeah, yeah. So the way of basically eating the grinding of cocoa, roasted cocoa beans, was by having not only your trusty metate, but also you know you you would do this process at your kitchen, and, and they will have fires, you know, pieces of um, coal, you know, like wood coal, and they will take some of these very very hot coal, put it under the metate and wait for a while to warm up the stomach. Now, a metate is like one single piece of volcanic rock. So we really believe that certain materials have a memory. And because, you know, it's a volcanic rock, it's a perfect conductor of heat, right? Because it has a, a high content. I mean, it's basically metals. So it heats up very nicely. And not only that, it retains the heat. So once the, the base of your metate is super, super hot, then you start grinding. As you grind the beans, it just melts literally in front of you. It just turns into this luscious, shiny, unctuous paste, you know, just by continuing uh, grinding it and then uh, squeezing it with cloths. Is that? It's very simple, very, very straightforward. Just, just being patient enough and, and using heat um, and friction. And yes, so they, they we use uh, the butter. They will let it solidify. Mexico is a hot place, so you, you get easily burned. So having it as a moisturizer is a really good idea, and uh, and also you know was the base of very luxurious makeups. There you go. Why didn't we listen to the Mesoamericans? I mean, 
the the Quaker chocolatiers spent so much time, money and frustration on trying to work out a perfect method. And we they could have just said, right, find a man, put him on a boat, give him a notepad and pen, tell him he is going to Mexico and he's going to find out. And he you, you have no idea how many rows there were between Quakers over this. <laughs> it could have been so simple. If, I, I, know, I know. If only we thought to if only we thought to go back to the home of chocolate. Oh, but there you go. It would have been cheaper. And but, but but the other thing that you said, I mean, even here in Mesa America, drinking chocolate and using chocolate, as as I you know talk about on the previous episode, it was not as accessible for everyone because you know if, if cocoa beans were also considered as a proto-currency, if you would sacrifice those beans, which were effectively money, to eat them, mm. well, you will have to be able to afford it. So I guess the social innovation, not only economic and uh, technological and culinary uh, innovation that the Quakers did, and we're going to talk about the Quakers a little bit further, is that they democratized, as you said, chocolate because they made it accessible. And even when young children you know, were able to afford one little piece of chocolate, what it didn't lose is the magic of it. And largely it's still, you know, is, is what makes it so special, right? And I'm the the Quakers were just business geniuses. They they realized that if you they they understood economies of scale. They realized that if you um if you stop making chocolate a um a rare luxury for the very very wealthy and instead make it something that people buy as as a habitual grocery product, a, a habitual grocery purchase every day of their lives. If they go to the shop and they buy milk and butter and bread and eggs and chocolate, then they're going to make so much more money. And by democratizing it, they did turn it into our national religion. We have the Church of England, but it's not as popular as chocolate. <laughs> well, you know, there's another church, uh, which I love to call it the First Church of England, which is John Lewis. Um, <gasps> yes. Right? Now, I've been obsessed with the Quakers for a long, long time. I just marveled at their genius. And I don't want to just leave it hanging there because we mentioned them and Quakers are at the heart of this chocolate industry in England. So as I said on the, on the previous episode, you know, how cocoa became part of the origin myths of ancient uh, indigenous tribes in Mexico, I think in a sort of an equivalent um, event of, you know, importance, um, many, many centuries later, Goko ended up also at the center of this rise of empowerment and reinvention of the Quakers. Now, the, the audience might be thinking like, what? The bloke in my oatmeal? Yes. So the Quakers were an English religious minority from the area of Lancaster who suffered discrimination at the hands of Anglicans, uh, and they limited their opportunities just like for Jewish people, no? Like they didn't have access to formal education. They made it very hard for them to own businesses. But through their, the businesses that they were allowed to do, which was, uh, as you just mentioned now, um, groceries and uh, trade, they ended up becoming some of the largest philanthropists because I think that says a lot about their belief in sort of uh, returning and enabling others to have the opportunities they were denied. And they spearheaded the welfare of, of the people they employed. And a bit later also, they even sponsored, promoted uh, social studies and studies on poverty and how to solve these really, really difficult and complex um, social issues. So uh, please tell us more from from your side and your experience as a chocolate historian. Like what what this role of Quakers are had in in you know having these huge economic uh, contributions and social impact, uh, which people outside Britain don't really know, and and how really chocolate became like a metaphor for what they achieved uh, as a community. I. It always amazes me when I leave England and I meet people who haven't heard of the Quakers and who haven't heard specifically of Benjamin Seabone Roundtree, who is my favourite of all of them. It, I, I love him so much that even before I was born, I arranged to have the same birthday as him. Um, <laughs> but first, the Quakers. So the Quakers were Christians, but they uh, were of the Protestant tradition and they didn't believe in priests. They didn't believe in rules. They said, you've just got to do what you believe 
that the spirit is is moving you to do. And there's a little bit of God inside everybody. And they believed in being honest. They said, we mustn't swear oaths. You must never swear an oath because it means that if you swear an oath, you're saying that when you're not swearing an oath, you might be dishonest. Mm-hmm. You've just got to be honest all of the time. And that was so, so powerful in business because before the introduction of the Food and Drugs Act, before the introduction of legislation that meant that you, um, you had to say what you're putting in the foodstuffs that you were selling, people were adulterating their, their foodstuffs. Grocers were trying to make a bit of extra money by putting bad things in their products. And so the only way to get a good product and to know that you were getting something safe was really to go and shop with the Quakers because being honest was their religion and you knew that you could trust them. And because it made them so successful, they made so much money, they became millionaires. There were um, uh, three really big chocolate Quaker families, the Fries, the Roundtrees and the Cadbury's. And the money that they made, ordinarily, you know, they'd have passed it on to their children. But because they were Quakers, they didn't believe in inherited wealth and they didn't believe in spending it on themselves. So there was uh, another famous chocolate factory and they bought Bentleys, and um, which is a luxury car. And they bought um, their own aeroplanes and mansions and holiday homes and things. Whereas the Quakers said, okay, let's invest our money into um, finding out what the causes of poverty are and trying to to end poverty. Let's build beautiful factories that are in gardens so that our factory workers, when they come into work, will have um, fresh air to breathe and will just be happier. Let's include sports grounds in the factory grounds so that during their lunch break and after work, they can go and play tennis or or play football or cricket and, and keep healthy. And let's calculate a living wage for factory workers and increase the wages in all our factories accordingly so that all of our employees get a living wage and we know that they can live in dignity. Let's build garden villages of affordable housing so that local people who are living in the slums, even if they don't work for us as employees, can still have a chance at a better life and living with dignity. Particularly at the Roundtree's factory, they were very famous for their workers' welfare. They provided a doctor, a dentist, pensions, sick pay long before any other companies were doing this. They created huge, huge charitable trusts to do good and invest in studies to scientifically investigate the the causes of poverty and then projects to try and tackle those causes of poverty. And it was Benjamin Seabone Roundtree who fought for legislation to protect workers at work and to create a welfare state in Britain for people who needed even more support and weren't in the workplace. And he was doing that all the time that he was head of the Roundtree's business. He was already busy creating things like Kit Kat and Aero and Dairy Box and Black Magic and Smarties and all of these huge chocolate brands that were not just a success in the UK, but were successful all over the world. And that would be enough for some businessmen. But for him, the chocolate was almost a sideline. He wanted to change the world. And those things that he was doing, they echo beyond the United Kingdom. It always amazes me how this very humble seed that came across from Mesoamerica I say humble. I mean, it was highly prized in Mesoamerica that this humble seed made enough money in England to fund all of this social change. The company um, Roundtrees even created this proto-fair trade project for harvesting gum arabic as early as um, the 1950s, long before anybody had thought of the fair trade organisation, because they'd made so much money off cocoa, they thought, right, let's have a go at doing something different and changing the way that we work. I am so enthusiastic about the Quakers. I could wax lyrical about them for months on end. They're wonderful. (laughs) Yes, yeah, I mean, I I am as well, probably not as much as you. But yeah, I mean, I think they pretty much... um, used uh, the success of cocoa and chocolate to effectively fulfill um, this spiritual, I want to say, philosophical vision, like to realize it without getting into or too deep into into a religious conversation. Um, it kind of it kind of sounds familiar with some principles of of another group of spiritual radicals within Catholicism, which were uh, the Jesuits, which I know they have a very strange history in England, but in this side of the world, in Latin America, they spearheaded the movements of independence and pretty much they did kind of something similar because they were hugely successful with their agricultural states, but used that money to invest in education, empowering indigenous people. So I guess in another universe, they would have been really, really good mates, uh, both groups, maybe. <laughs> I, I think they, they're probably good mates anyway, because the, the Quakers and particularly Seabone Roundtree, they believed in um, 
uh, ecumenism, in reaching out to um, other denominations within Christianity, but even other religions. And um, Benjamin Seaway Roundtree's favourite expression, um, the one that he lived his life by, was, we are all one. All human beings, all nations, we are all one. And and that was the way he looked at his business. Uh, he believed that he was equal with his employees. Um, he was equal with the people that he was selling things to. He believed we are all one. And that motivated him. So I'm sure that he probably knew a Jesuit or two. And um, they probably had a cup of cocoa together. Got on very well. <laughs> well, we, we just need them to get into politics because we need a lot of that. Uh, right now, I think. Yeah. <laughs> now, yeah. moving on to, to uh, another kind of foodie aspect. Um, I really have to say that I feel always very, very triggered when people dismiss English gastronomy as being bland or unimaginative, which I think says more about them than the reality of it. Because, okay, well, we might think of England as a hyper-industrialized and modern society. The truth is that when it comes to the rights and habits uh, that form the nation's cultural and gastronomic identity, the English people are incredibly protective and, I want to say, devoted to your traditions. Uh, one of them being Christmas. Uh, that's a good example. So, like, in my experience, you can't call it a successful Christmas day if there isn't uh, a proper roast with all the trimmings, even uh, Brussels sprouts that everybody loves to hate. Mulled wine or cider, hot toddy, satsumas, fruit cake, Christmas pudding, mince pies. And by the time, you, you know, one is rather comatose watching whatever Christmas special uh, is on the telly, then comes out uh, the box of, of Macintosh Quality Street chocolates and the day is absolutely complete. Now, you know a thing or two about this treasure box that is Quality Street and because you have written not one but two novels that have this national treasure at the heart of your stories. So please tell us first, what on earth is Quality Street? And um, what uh, was the backstory of your books, uh, Quality Street Girls and the Mothers of Quality Street? Well, I think that you've perfectly captured Quality Street. Half of the enjoyment is in the, the, the chocolates and the toffees themselves, but the other half of the enjoyment is in the rituals that we've built up uh, around the product. And we've got very, very strong feelings about it. And it, in at Christmas time, if you don't have a tin of quality streets, then it can cause a row. But it's it's funny how different families have different traditions. So in some families, they'll have it sort of in their, their the Christmas stocking. And then in another family, they'll say, no, 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 that's the wrong way to eat quality street. You have a tin of quality street underneath the Christmas tree <laughs> and, and you, you pick at it all the way through the December. And then another family will say that's terrible that's anathema you heathens you only have the you only open the tin on christmas day after christmas dinner and you eat it in front of the television and each different family feels so strongly <laughs> about when it is appropriate and when it is definitely not appropriate to open the tin of quality street i love the strong feelings about it and so when i was approached to to write about it i had to think very carefully about how i would turn it into a story for those people outside the uk who are perhaps not familiar with our um we have a, a religious of chocolate but we have a <laughs> kind of a, a small cult devoted to quality street quality street was created by a toffee maker in in 1936 he wanted to create sort of an affordable alternative to boxes of chocolates because boxes of chocolates were made with this exotic foreign ingredient chocolate whereas he made toffees and toffees were made with uh, british sugar and butter and, and cream and things and and that was much more affordable. And if you combine the two, if you made toffees coated in chocolates and maybe one or two chocolates sprinkled in, it kept the cost down. So it was a, an affordable alternative to a chocolate box. And he decided that because he loved the plays of J.M. Barry, that's the same guy who wrote Peter Pan, he decided that he would use the name of one of J.M. Barry's other plays, Quality Street, and he'd take the characters from the play and put them on the on the tin and on the packaging and, and scenes from the play on the packaging. And I don't think he ever thought that it would become a national obsession where after after Christmas dinner, there would be fights in the household about whether or not somebody had eaten too many of the orange creams. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I kind of joke about it, but there have been hugely heated public rows in the national newspapers in the UK about changes to the shape of the tin and the size of the tin and the assortment and the recipe. There was one chocolate that was introduced in um, 
2007 and it was just introduced to kind of bulk out the the assortment because it was a, a tough time economically and so the, the factory said okay we're going to add one that's a little bit cheaper and then once they started to do better um i think this was around about 2015 the the factory said okay we'll take out this cheap one that we put in in 2007 and we'll put in a more expensive chocolate now and the nation went crazy and said how dare you you've taken away our favorite you're awful and i was there on that day when this broke in the news and my colleagues and i in the press office because as company historian i was attached to the press office we had to quickly cobble together press statements to apologize to the nation for ruining christmas and say i'm so sorry um we'll put it back we'll put it back honest we will um Nestle had bought up Roundtree Macintosh in 1988 and they've owned uh, Quality Street for a long time. HarperCollins asked if they could commission uh, a novel with Quality Street as its theme. They thought it might sell well at Christmas time as a, a Christmas gift for grandmas. And, but I knew straight away what they ought to be doing. Um, I said to them, look, you need to hire me. I'm desperate to write this book for you. And after a little bit of back and forth, they said, oh, okay. okay." I thought about Quality Street and how it was created in this decade of great innovation for chocolate. It was this golden age for confectionery. It was when Kit Kat, Aero, Smarties and all kinds of other products which have gone on to be very famous. But it was also a decade when the world changed because this was a decade during which fascism was on the rise all over the world. And it was the run up to the, the Second World World War. Socially, we were seeing huge change, not unlike now. There were very, very uh, strong echoes which uh, ha have parallels today. And Quality Street was being made in Halifax in West Yorkshire, but it was being made in 1936 by exploiting young women. They didn't have equality with the, the male counterparts in the factories. And that was the, the story I wanted to tell. Mm -hmm. yeah. I didn't just want to talk about the chocolates. I wanted to talk about what it was like to absolutely love making those chocolates and to love love your job, but to be heartbroken that you didn't have equality with your, your male counterparts and what it was like to feel the need to fight for those equal mm -hmm. rights. Because I talked to lots of the women who were working there and they all said that they loved it, that it was the best time of their life. But it was such a difficult and uphill struggle to try to work as a woman in a factory where you were kind of expected to leave the moment you got married. There was a marriage bar that meant that as soon as you were married, you were dismissed with no severance pay at all and you weren't allowed to work in the factory. You come back as a seasonal worker, but you couldn't have a permanent contract. For a lot of women meant that if their boyfriend proposed marriage to them, if they wanted to keep working, they had to say no. Wow. You have to choose. Are you going to marry the guy you love or are you going to keep doing the job that you love? That's a, a horrible decision to have to make. But in the background, there's this, there are the strong feelings that are created by this famous chocolate brand and the strong feelings in the factory that's making them. So it's serious stuff, but I wanted the stories to also be like Quality Street, the chocolate itself. I wanted them to be bright and colourful and exciting and kind of easy to gobble up in an afternoon if you're not careful. So the books are kind of a guilty pleasure, like the chocolates. They're great fun to write. I'm thoroughly enjoying them and it does mean that as somebody who wants to be a cocoa educator, a chocolate educator, and teach people about chocolate and how chocolate is made and the story around the manufacture of chocolate, I can take people behind the scenes in a way that I can't do anywhere else. And so I absolutely love it. You are really voicing also the life stories of a community and of people. And in this day and age, being able to return the dignity, value and make people feel appreciated for their contributions to their community, to the nation, ultimately to the world. Uh, is one of the most rewarding things and is so important to also raise awareness and really empower those voices and those stories. And I'm sure that the people of Halifax must be absolutely dead and utterly delighted with your books. I, I am indebted to the people of Halifax because they have been wonderful telling me their stories and it's been a privilege, absolute privilege to, to be able to write them down. England is important in the history of European chocolate, but I would argue that York is the capital of chocolate in England. There were some really great chocolate factories in the Midlands and in the south of England, but York did some exciting things. We had um, the Tukes, the Roundtrees, the Terries and the Cravens. And between those four different factories, they all had different approaches to confectionery and chocolate. And they all influenced each other and kind of bounced ideas off each other. It was a sort of a melting pot of experimentation and innovation. The Tukes brought in this traditional grocery attitude to chocolate. They started off as grocers. They were Quaker grocers. And so they thought of chocolate as a grocery product that you would try to sell every day as a habitual grocery purchase. Terry's had started off 
not as grocers, but as um, apothecaries and also randomly making cake decorations. So they saw confectionery as kind of either a novelty or a means to an end. So they would either use it to coat a bitter pill, like a, a bitter medicine, so you can taste it, or they were making something very beautiful. They made a famous product called the Terry's Chocolate Orange, which when you think about it, is kind of basically a toy made out of chocolate. It's um, a spherical chocolate product. You don't tap it, you whack it very hard on a hard surface. It splits in the middle, it splits open into segments like the segments of an orange, and it's it's orange-flavoured chocolate. And so it's a novelty. Even before they made the Terry's Chocolate Orange, they made um, a series of sweets called Terry's Conversation Pastilles, which were little discs of sugar onto which they had pressed conversation-starting phrases like, do you polka? And how do you flirt? Uh, and my favourite is, I want a wife. And you'd buy a little paper bag full of these conversation pastilles as a sort of a 19th century posh gentleman. And then you might turn up at the assembly rooms in York and try to introduce yourself to a lady and offer her one of the conversation pastilles. And she might pull out a sweet saying, how do you polka? So their attitude was novelty. Then along come the Cravens and their background was in confectionery retail. They had some shops. And so they were thinking about the sensory experience that the consumer has when they go into a shop, an explosion of colour and shapes and aroma and different kinds of wrapping to entice you. And then finally, the latest comers to the party were the Roundtrees. And they were the ones who brought in not just this grocery attitude, but branding. They thought, let's give each of our products an individual personality of its own. Up until the, the 1920s and 30s, they had loads and loads of different chocolate boxes and they were all named after palaces that belonged to the royal family or members of the royal family. They had Queen Chocolate and King Chocolate and Emperor Chocolate and Prince of Wales Chocolate and they were all a bit similar. And then they said, let's give them personalities. Let's call them Kit Kat, Aero and Smarties and make something vivid. And all four of those companies, by doing all of these different things, they were able to survive separately. No one company kind of swallowed up the others in the way that Cadbury's swallowed up fries, but also to drive one another to do different and new things and to compete with each other. And so I would say that the north of England, and particularly York, became this powerhouse of confectionery because there were some people in the north who were too stubborn to change their ways and do what their neighbours were doing. That's why this didn't happen in the south of England. The people of the south of England tend to be less stubborn. Whereas we in the north of England are fabulously stubborn and it stood us in good stead. It's true. Well, and effectively they created like a, a proper dynamic business ecosystem as opposed to cannibalizing each other. Hmm? Yeah. The the problem with Cadbury's and Fries was they were fantastically successful businesses, but they were too similar. Although Roundtrees were offered the opportunity to merge with Fries and Cadbury's, they chose not to. And that benefited the whole confectionery industry across the UK because it drove them to be more innovative. In the previous episode of the podcast, I talked about a non-culinary but important use of cocoa beans as a proto-currency. What I didn't say then is that just like now, there were always people trying to outsmart the law by forging cocoa beans. And it was pretty much a thing in ancient Mexico because it wasn't too difficult. So people will peel off the shell and fill it with clay or dirt and mix it with the actual beans. But this was considered such a serious crime that was punishable by death. And many centuries later, when England went crazy for sweetened powdered cocoa, adulteration came hand in hand with very serious and harmful consequences. So here is Alex telling us more about this. Oh, you want to talk about um, adulteration, which I love. I covered adulteration a little bit in a previous answer, but I'll give you this one as well. I'm particularly interested in this darker side of cocoa because cocoa was this expensive luxury in Britain for so, so long. And it was so tempting for unscrupulous grocers and confectioners to try to make more money by adulterating it to make it go further. They'd add wax and dyes and potentially hazardous ingredients to cocoa. And it's easy to do in the early days because cocoa was an occasional luxury. They didn't know what cocoa was meant to taste like. So you don't know if it's been adulterated. It's it's one of the reasons why it's so important to taste chocolate properly. My favourite story to do with adulteration is actually to do with tea rather than cocoa. There's a, a story about how one tea dealer was buying used tea leaves from the back door of a hotel, drying them out and boiling them in sheep dung. And I'm not sure whether that was to bring out a flavour or a colour or what. It did bring out a flavour. I don't know if it was the right one. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm not sure why the sheep dung was involved. Dried it again 
and then resold it. And so there, there was this huge problem of adulteration in cocoa as, as well as other products. And that was why the Quakers thrived, because until the 1860 Food and Drugs Act and other legislations to stop adulteration of product, the only way to guarantee that you were getting a safe product was really go and buy it from a Quaker, which is good because it meant they made loads of money and they were able to use it as social entrepreneurs and architects of the welfare state to change all our lives for the better. When legislation was finally changed, which were the forms of uh, penalization? Oh, I don't know. That's a great question. <laughs> I mean, I, I just want to believe that they weren't as harsh as the Aztec ones, which were punishable by death. So yes, just yeah. to put that I've, in context. I've, <laughs> I've heard that the Aztecs were pretty harsh. It's possible that you could have been deported to the colonies but um oh i need to double check that's a very good question what was our penalty another hugely important aspect behind the confectionery industry is the trade of sugar and cocoa as i said before and looking into it reveals the historical relationship between the old and the new world in which basically the land and people of colonized nations were exploited for the sole benefit of the empires And at the light of the Black Lives Matter movement and the historical deaths, but well, there is still a much needed and long due conversation that is slowly beginning to happen. And even if it's early days, one really hopes that it will lead to positive changes. So here is Alex helping us understand and put this in context. This is, it's so sad because I want to love the Quakers and then they go and do this. There's one thing that we need to discuss so much more in England and that we need to be more open about. And that's because history is about to repeat itself. If we don't talk about our legacy of slavery, the things that we, we're guilty of having done as a British people, then it will be so easy for it to happen again. And we do, as consumers, we do have the power to stop it repeating itself. The two best examples actually come from the Quakers, who I've already mentioned, who were working in um, in the, the confectionery industry. So there's the Tuke family, who their, their chocolate factory was bought up by the Roundtrees and became one of the biggest chocolate factories in the world. They were based in York. They were anti-slavery. They were helping to fund William Wilberforce's election campaign in England to get him back into Parliament to abolish slavery. While all this was going on, the employees of the local uh, psychiatric hospital, what was known as the Lunatic Asylum at the time, which had been set up by the Tukes, which they had created this charitable lunatic asylum, their employees had to sign a petition to send to the Tukes to say, could you please stop buying sugar made by slaves? Because at the moment, you've got a choice between sugar which isn't made by slaves and sugar which is, and you're buying the sugar which is. The petition worked, and they stopped buying sugar uh, made by slaves. And then a hundred years later, the Quakers who had inherited their business, so the, the Cabris and the Fries particularly, but also um, a little bit the Roundtrees, they had started buying cocoa from Sao Tome, which was an island owned by um, the Portuguese at the time. And they discovered that the cocoa there was being farmed and processed by slaves in conditions so horrific and distressing that I can't even begin. It, it sounds it sounds horrifying. And there are photographs of the conditions that these slaves were being transported in. They were kidnapped from their native land and taken by boat to Sao Tome in shackles. They would quite often die on the journey. They would have to march hundreds of miles to that boat Even though slavery had been legally abolished, they were told, well, you're contracted employees and you're going to have to stay here for a long time. And basically your children will be owned by the, the plantation. And the Quakers found out about this. And instead of immediately boycotting those cocoa plantations, they said, right, well, we'll send somebody to go and check to see if it's true. And so knowing mm. full well that Other human beings were suffering under horrific conditions. They stalled for another six months. And then they sent this guy and he wrote his report and they stalled for longer and longer and longer. And this stalled for years until finally they were exposed publicly in the press. The Quakers said, well, we're going to sue. This isn't true. You shouldn't say this about us. And they, they took um, the journalist to court and the judge said, "Okay, I find in favour of the Quakers, but I'm only giving you damages of one farthing, which was the smallest amount of money in British currency at the time. It was even less than a penny because he said, well, kind of on a technicality, you get off. But really, morally, what you're doing is not okay. And 
this is the problem that we have with chocolate and confectionery. It's made with ingredients that have come from places where there is a long legacy of slavery. But yeah, I mean, that's just to prove that history is never black and white. And, and they were also part of very much the economics of their time, rather regrettably. Well, uh, now, Alex, to begin closing this conversation, because thank you so much for this amazing chat. You are a woman of many, many talents and have created a very exciting career for yourself. And one thing I'm always fascinated by is about how food can become a catalyst or entry point for people to find their true passion. And your career has spanned to becoming now, like you said, uh, a writer, an educator. Why don't you share with us which have been the pivotal moments that have helped you expand in these different areas of interest and helped you discover all these hidden or maybe obvious <laughs> talents? Well, I've been lucky. I've been so, so lucky. When I look back on my career, I still can't believe that it's happened and that I am where I am. Uh, and a lot of people ask me sort of how they could do the same thing, how they could follow in my footsteps. And the one thing I always say is that libraries have have really been my, my lifeline. And it sounds corny, but all of my biggest career breaks came about because I kind of camped out and lived in my local library. I I had a career for six years in libraries before I went into archives. So I, although I was working in archives for, for 10 years as the company historian at a chocolate factory, I had a career before that in libraries. And even before that, I was working in the school library. And because of that school experience, I got to be a librarian. And there have always been various reasons why working in libraries has got me into a job. The first public speaking events I did were because the librarians I knew invited me and the first TV appearances I did were because I had read all of the book in the Nestle Chocolate Factory Library. And because I knew everything in them, the press office said, OK, you can you can go and do this TV appearance because nobody knows this stuff like you. Even the publishing contract that I got with HarperCollins, which was really, really remarkable. It was a two book deal and it's unheard of for a, a debut author to be given a two book deal and to be immediately put into kind of hardback and audiobook and everything. And I think it was because I said, well, I've worked in libraries for a really long time, so I'm, I'm pretty sure I know the book trade already. I wish I could say that it was because I'd been inspired as a young person at my grandma's kitchen table watching her cook amazing things. But neither of my grandmas were chefs. They just really liked eating chocolate, particularly Cadbury's cream eggs. So I think that if there's one pivotal thing, it's been libraries. And they're so underrated at the moment. And we, we all need to give them more support because uh, they definitely changed my life and, and made my career. And so underfunded, may I say, which is why yes. wherever you are in the world listening to this, support your local library, donate to your local library. They transform lives and they empower, they are custodians of the history and help us make and shape our future. So that is absolutely amazing and inspiring. I'm also a bookworm and I really, really also believe that books have uh, the potential to transform our lives in so many and wonderful ways. Alex, uh, finally, please, I'm sure there's going to be loads of questions. People are going to be like, oh my God, I need to know more about this and that. So prepare to answer <laughs> loads of, of curious questions. And to do that, share your social media channels and please mention again your books, which will be obviously on the links of this episode. Uh, but, you know, upcoming events, virtual if possible. <laughs> I, I was going to say there are there are no upcoming events at the moment because um, not only am I meant to be writing the third Quality Street novel for my editor, but uh, we're only just emerging from lockdown here. I'm, I'm lucky if I can go to the corner shop. But for anybody who's looking for me, although my real name is Alex Hutchinson, my publishers published me under the pen name of Penny Thorpe. So if you're looking for my books, they're The Quality Street Girls and The Mothers of Quality Street, published by HarperCollins, uh, by Penny Thorpe. And my social media handles Oh, excuse me. I'm going croaky with excitement at the idea of all of these communications I'm going to receive by social media. My social media handles are all Penthorpe Books and Thorpe is with an E. So if you look for Penthorpe Books on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, you're bound to find me. Or you can look at my website, alexthearchivist.com, which will have links to all of those. And hopefully we will all be out of lockdown very soon and there'll be some events. But for the moment, let's just chill out and eat some chocolate. Have a think about what it tastes like and what those flavours are. Just, uh, yeah, don't worry about looking at me. Just go and eat a chocolate bar. <laughs> well, put your feet up and read one of your books. That, that sounds to me like... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah perfect. Well, Alex, again, thank you so much. 
big hogs are all the way to the north of England, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to talk to you and hope to talk to you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye, 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 bye. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Rocio Carvajal. To find all the links that we mentioned today over the interview, including how to contact Alex, get her books and learn more about the history of confectionery, please check this episode's notes on your podcast app. And of course, check the special blog post on my website, pasachipotle.com. As I mentioned at the top of the show, this episode brings season four of Passage Butler podcast to an end. Hmm, but does it? Well, let's see. So far in this season, you have enjoyed five brilliant interviews and nine individual episodes, which are in total more than 11 hours of audible culinary bliss. And believe me, there is at least five times that of research and production. The following episode, which will be number 61, will be the now traditional best beats of 2020, in which you will hear a recap of the conversations that I've had over the last year and will be a chance to look back at all of the stories I've presented to you over the show and maybe we'll hint some of the adventures to come your way for season 5. In the meantime, remember, you can always reach out to me, just like the lovely people at the Brentwood Library in New York, for whom I will be offering an online lecture on the history of Mexican markets, and the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, for whom I will be having a virtual chat on Chiles this upcoming September. My door and inbox are always open, and you can send me a message to hello at pasthechipotle.com. Find me on Instagram and, of course, on Twitter. Well, just click the links that I left for you and say hi. I really love it when you reach out and say hi. And with that, that is goodbye from me, my friends. Until the next time. <laughs>